Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. I'm undergoing self-isolation. It's the only way to be. Just for the lack of stimulation. So come self-isolate with me.
from deep inside your radio where all the toxic DJs hang out. I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome to this edition of the show. I was just thinking, ladies and gentlemen, the dangerous thing to do any time, but especially now. You know, when um, this country, the United States, started, there was a form of communication enabled people in the big cities and in the rural parts of the country to, to be in touch with each other. It's called the United States Postal Service. It was in the Constitution. They put it in the Constitution. Then, of course, uh, I think what was this, the 17th Amendment uh, passed, which said that it had the Postal Service had to operate as efficiently as FedEx. But then in uh, the early 30s, another communications form developed, radio, radio, and it used the public airwaves, and it was regulated by the Federal Communications Commission. Same with television when it came along. Privately owned, but regulated. And in the recent past, a new form of communication was invented, the Internet and the mobile Internet. And the latter, at least, used, again, public airwaves. I I didn't know we owned them. They told me. And um, this time, they used the public airwaves, and they're not regulated at all. And you tell me you don't believe in progress? And now... Let me tell you about the bees. Yeah! Actually, let me tell you. He's busy singing. Native bees that boost food crops are in decline. But uh, changing fire management policies could help them. Really? More fire, more bees? Most flowering plant farms enjoy, employ, <laughs> enjoy and employ honeybees. That's a non-native species originally imported from Europe before we put the kibosh on them. And it's managed, that is to say, the trade is managed by beekeepers, which I guess you didn't need me to tell you. Research, though, shows that farms surrounded by natural bee habitat have higher crop yields. UC Riverside entomologist Lauren Ponicio explains native bees are increasingly important to food growers. They pollinate crops, is what they do, on the very next page, on the fringes of a farm and could potentially also be used for agricultural purposes. The non-native honeybees currently used for crops are having problems. We're in trouble if native bees can't replace or supplement them on our farms, Ponicio says. Relying on one species of bee to pollinate our, our, all of our crops is unsustainable. The thousands of bee species live in the wild, many of which are found in California. She found these native bees are better able to survive harsh climate event, events like drought. This is in the journal Ecology and Evolution. In areas where naturally occurring fires are allowed to burn, they do better. Small fires consume dry brush that would otherwise fuel megafires. They are occurring with increasing frequency in California. In addition to eliminating fuel from megafires, small mixed severity burns ow, also trigger positive changes in the environment. They remove unhealthy and dead trees, allow sunlight to reach a forest floor, and create a better environment for native plants and their pollinators to thrive. This is uh, a study conducted at Yosemite National Park. We're actually uh, near there. 
where fires are fought immediately in other areas of the park, like the Iluit Basin, fires are allowed to burn naturally as they have for centuries. So that's how she drew that conclusion. The honeybee is a hypergeneralist, said Ponicio. There's not a plant they won't try out, which is why they're great for agriculture and so successful when they invade wild ecosystems. Boosting native plants would provide ample food resources both for native and non-native European honeybees. This way all of them could feed and not compete for pollen resources. You, you guys, come on. Work together. You're bees. Smokey the Bear was wrong, Panicio said. We actually don't need to prevent forest fires when they're not endangering people, unquote. By the way, she's not uh, hip to this not-so-recent development, but they changed his name from Smokey the Bear to Smokey Bear, a hatred of the definite article at work there. Also, speaking of bees, they they feel the sting of air pollution more acutely than we do, Speaking as a non-bee, I don't know about you, a three-year study in India finds that even mildly dirty air could kill 80% of giant Asian honeybees. That's a key pollinator in South Asia. Convenient for them? This according to science. Without such bees and other insects, domestic production of fruits, vegetables, nuts, and legumes could be at risk, the team says. This is an important and timely study, says a behavioral ecologist at the University of Wulu, who was not involved in this recent study. The findings are the first to document the impact of air pollution on insects. They emphasize just how far-ranging the effects of human-caused pollution can be. Quote, I think we have to be more worried. Unquote. I don't think we could get any more worried, sir. Air pollution claimed more than one million Indian lives in 2015. Indian cities regularly dominate global worst polluted lists. But the Asian honeybee, the giant one, Apis dorsata, is a major pollinator in many Indian landscapes, including cities where their large nests sometimes hang off tall buildings in a single bound. Indeed, the insects are thought to be critical for India's huge fruit and vegetable production. Did you realize they they raise huge fruit? I don't think that's what that means. The country produced more than $3 billion of fresh fruit in 2016, the world's largest, second largest producer of vegetables. After Kern County, California. No. Really? Maybe. No. Overall, bees collected at more polluted sites were far more likely to be flecked with particulate matter containing toxic heavy metals, like arsenic and lead. It's a report by this team in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Glad to know they proceed. Four out of five bees collected from the most polluted areas died within a day of collection. They're going to blame the pollution and not the collection, don't you know? Twice as many as those collected from non-polluted areas In addition, bees covered in toxic dust visited flowers only half as many times as their non-dusted cousins, but non-dusted cousins, potentially reducing the chances of successful pollination. Bees that lived in polluted areas also tended to have irregular heartbeats, a sign of poor cardiac health, you're telling me, and lower levels of blood sugar or blood cells. That's a sign of a compromised immune system. Hey, we all got a compromise in this business. News of bees. You probably could pollinate crops just by putting a radio near them and letting them listen to that. But now, ladies and gentlemen, um, do you remember the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I believe it was called? It was a trade deal worked out during the Obama administration. The current guy, um, crap candidate. But it uh, contained a provision that was present in NAFTA and a lot of other international trade agreements as well. And a lot of the people who opposed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, who weren't Trumpians, uh, 
focused on one specific portion of the agreement that was also in those other international trade agreements that they were finding increasingly problematic. Those were investor state disputes, ISDs. These were provisions that would allow a company that had invested in a foreign country, that is to say a country that wasn't its home base, unless you're like Apple, which has no home base, you that company could sue the country, the foreign country that it was invested in, for loss of expected profits. Now, that that hasn't been all that bothersome so far, except for the countries that got sued, the few of them. But now we have this warning as we follow the dollar. This is something we could have predicted at the start of the pandemic. We, who uh, knew about the investor dispute, investor state dispute resolution system, but uh, most of us didn't predict it, and now here it is, according to The Guardian. Governments around the world, including Great Britain and your very own United States, your favorite country, face a wave of lawsuits from foreign companies who complain their profits had been hit by the pandemic. Webinars and presentations shared with clients by law firms reveal that leading global law firms anticipate governments around the world will soon face claims over their response to the COVID-19 virus. The actions are being brought under investor state dispute settlement clauses, which are embedded in trade and investment agreements and allow foreign investors and firms to sue other countries' governments. The claims are heard in highly secretive ad hoc tribunals before a panel of three judges, often lawyers who work for law firms in this business, in this particular line of work. Often it's not apparent that a case is being brought until the panel sits. Sit! Sit, panel! The law firm Alston & Braid used a recent webinar to predict that the U.K. will be sued over the mayor of London's decision to close, close the crossrail construction crossrail they're not crossing no whale crossrail construction sites during the pandemic. That's a uh, mega transportation project, a rail line from east to west London. They don't have that. No, the decision was at odds with the government's policy of allowing sites to operate throughout lockdown. That's an inconsistency that the lawyers say opens up the way for a legal challenge. And nothing lawyers like better than a legal challenge. I can tell you that for sure. Law firm Reed Smith has predicted that measures taken by governments to deal with the crisis are affecting investments, quote, directly and significantly and could give rise to substantial claims, unquote. I think their phone number is on the screen right now. And Ropes and Gray has issued an alert advising clients to consider actions brought under investment treaties as, quote, a powerful tool to recover or prevent loss resulting from COVID-19-related government actions, unquote. There are particular concerns about claims being brought against governments in the developing world. That's just what they need. A London lawyer coming after them. You cost us money. I, excuse me. You cost us money. Investor state dispute settlements. One uh, one good reason not to be in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, ladies and gentlemen, if you ask me. But you didn't. 
And I'm going to take that personally. As far as I'm concerned, I like to take everything personally because you do better that way. We've noticed. And now news of the godly. Do you know about um, Archbishop Theodore McCarrick? He was uh, recently escorted uh, off the uh, premises of the Catholic Church for some uh, improprieties. It turns out this is an old story, at least in the church. In the late 1980s, several seminary students approached one of their professors for help, saying they didn't want to take any more trips to then-Newark Archbishop Theodore McCarrick's home on the Jersey Shore. But they feared reprisals if they complained to archdiocesan officials. The Reverend Ed Redding, a priest in the Patterson, New Jersey diocese, was alarmed, according to the New Jersey Herald, when the seminarians told him they felt pressured into sharing a bed with McCarrick and having to undress in front of him. At least they didn't have to do it behind him. Although they did not say he touched them sexually. Redding reported it to his bishop, who indicated he'd contact the Vatican's U.S. representative. Something had to be done, says Redding, who now works as a counselor. It's emotional abuse, and it's a power problem. I'll say. About two weeks later, Newark priests told Redding that church officials made an unannounced visit to the archdiocese, apparently to clap, clamp down on the use of the beach house. It was perhaps the first attempt to curtail McCarrick's activities, but like some other actions later taken by priests and church officials, there were either no consequences or they were fleeting, because McCarrick took seminarians to the shore home for years afterward. Well, it's got a nice garden. Church officials have said they knew of no allegations against McCarrick related to the abuse of children until two years ago, but his alleged sexual assessment of adult seminarians was whispered about for decades. That's based on recent USA Today Network New Jersey interviews with former seminary teachers and students and a former personal secretary to McCarrick. Redding called the harassment, quote, the worst kept secret ever, unquote. McCarrick is now 90. Until two years ago, he was a popular figure, rising to become one of the church's most powerful leaders. But in June, his storied career came to an end. That's 2018, when church officials removed him from ministry, saying they had received credible allegations that he abused, guess what, an older boy decades ago in New York. That's when all the boys were good. At the same time, church officials said they received three allegations of sexual misconduct with adults decades ago against McCarrick, saying the two of the claims resulted in settlements long past. Last year, McCarrick became the first American cardinal to be defrocked. And cardinals have such nice frockings. Uh, that underscored allegations of the sexual harassment of seminarians that followed him for much of his career. He had been revered for his ability to raise money. And the Shore House helped serve that purpose. Several people interviewed said McCarrick was known to take seminarians to dinner with wealthy potential donors who had homes at the Shore, parading the young men as the future of the church. Because he'd seen them undressed. He knew they had a future. And now they had a past. The notorious pedophile priest Vincent Gerard Ryan 
is no longer permitted to celebrate the sacraments or dress as a priest. After a decision to remove, this is in Australia, after a decision to remove his priestly faculties. <laughs> yes, he can still see in here. Don't worry about it. The 82-year-old walked free on parole last month. He'd served less than half of a three-year sentence relating to, to guess what? Altar boys. See a thread yet? This is from the ABC of Australia. Not the one you know. Ryan had, pre- had previously spent 14 years in prison for abusing more than 30 boys. Well, that's about six months a boy. The Catholic bishop of the uh, area, Maitland, Newcastle, Newcastle, had been pressed to reveal what steps he'd taken to ask Pope Francis to remove Ryan from the priesthood. At the time he was paroled, Ryan was still listed as a priest on the diocese website. ABC Australia now says his status has changed, his faculties permanently removed. Catholic Church says faculties are a cleric's authorization to celebrate the sacraments and act on behalf of the Church. Ryan can no longer dress in clerical garb, except on Halloween, of course, or identify himself as a priest if he goes door-to-door, or even if he doesn't. In uh, a program on the ABC TV network in Australia, Ryan was seen performing Mass in his home. Dining room Mass. Survivors were livid, and after the program aired, they told the ABC it caused anger and distress. A representative of the the Clergy Abuse Network said removing Ryan's faculties did not go far enough. They should remove his students. No, he didn't say that. They argued instead that he should be defrocked. It's certainly not laicization, and it is not what survivors would be seeking from Rome, really, because it's the Pope who has to do the laicization. When you consider the number of victims, there is a lot. He should be laicized. Bishop Wright says the authority to remove a priest from the clerical state, that is, the state of being a cleric, not there's not a, there's not a you know, nothing between Idaho and Montana. That, uh, that's reserved to the Pope on advice from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. They have uh, not yet. I don't even know if they saw the, uh, the home mass. Could give them ideas, you know, with the with the COVID thing and and churches. And Pope Francis continued to cleaning house in Poland this week, and that's as a house that could use some cleaning. This is following revelations of clergy sexual abuse and cover up. He replaced the powerful Archbishop of Gdansk on his seventy fifth birthday. Happy birthday! You're fired. This is from the Associated Associated Press. That's correct. While all Catholic bishops must offer to retire when they turn 75, it's highly unusual for the Pope to accept it on the prelate's actual birthday. That's got a sting. Doing so suggests that Francis was keen to send a signal showing his seriousness about ending the culture of concealment within the Polish church hierarchy. They got their own culture over there. The Pope named a temporary administrator to run the Gdansk Archdiocese. And no, it's not Lech Walesa after he accepted the resignation of Archbishop Glodge. Glodge was featured in one of the devastating recent documentaries in Poland about priestly sex abuse and cover-up in that country. They have sparked a reckoning in the overwhelmingly Catholic country. In the film last year, Tell No One, Glodge is shown eulogizing a known pedophile priest, Reverend Sibula, the personal chaplain to the aforementioned Lech Walesa, at his funeral. Not Valesa's funeral, at the priest's, the priest's 
you know, you see what I'm saying? Despite knowing of his abuse. Abuse survivors also included Glodz in a report identifying two dozen current and retired Polish bishops accused of protecting predator priests. That report was delivered to Francis. No, he didn't he didn't he didn't know about he, on the eve of his twenty nineteen Global Abuse Prevention Summit at the Vatican. The Archbishop had been criticized by a prominent Polish survivor, Barbara Borowiska, a victim of one of Poland's most famous Solidarity-era priests, the late Reverend Jankowski, Henryk Jankowski. A statue of Jankowski in Gdansk was toppled and eventually removed last year following her revelations. I'm so, so happy and shocked, she said. I never expected this news, never in a million years. She says she'd received violent threats for having to dare go public with her claims, as well as support from ordinary Poles. The action by France. Yes, I resisted. The action by Francis was the second time in two months that he replaced a Polish bishop on the same day the bishop turned 75. That followed another decision by the Pope to sideline a third Polish bishop pending a Vatican investigation into allegations he covered up for predators. But he's cleaning up. He really is. Got a broom and everything. Anna Barrett-Doyle, of the online abuse resource Bishop Accountability, said Francis' decision to remove Glodge on his birthday was encouraging and signals his strong disapproval. She said Francis could do more. If he's outraged by the Archbishop's coddling of abusers, why not publicly publicly denounce him, she asked. Why not explicitly fire him rather than give him the dignity of retirement? True accountability, she said, would require Glodge to, quote, incur penalties proportional to the pain he caused. That sounds cruel, doesn't it? News of the Godly, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And uh, now, just some thoughts about uh, what we've been going through this last little while. Of course, you may remember in the springtime, (laughs) President Trump had said that the virus would go away well, by Easter, but then, you know, when they, when they were weather warmed up. Virus doesn't like the, the, the heat. I tell that to the people in Texas and Arizona and Florida and California more recently. They've had the kind of summer that can uh, be depicted most accurately in song. Like it never ends No live concert 
concerts under the stars, no swinging dates in the grooviest bars. No grad night parties on moonlit lagoons. No honeymoon rising, hot air balloons. Sounds like the summer. Sweatpants and tees, freaked by an anti-social disease. Farewell to high school, hello to what? We're quarantining in our virtual hut. Days getting shorter, big freaking deal. Just earlier takeouts of an unhappy me. go down pinned to the ground what did you think would happen and in every bougie country club every cracker barrel talking hush don't sue the bus boys won't hear Connie telling Carol those people scared me those people Ancient history It's time to get over that chip on your shoulder We all love Oprah Don't we?
It's the show thing from the place where the show thing comes from. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the award-winning News of the Warm. You could nominate it for an award if you had the means or the connections. I think what I've learned about life is if you have the connections, you have the means. Glaciers in the... This is going to be about um, some melting. A lot, whole lot of melting going on. Glaciers in the Southern Hemisphere, located in New Zealand, are past a tipping point in terms of ice loss due to climate change. Why didn't they tell us before the tipping Oh, they did, I think. Southern Alps, or Ka Tiritiri Ote Moana, as they're known to the indigenous Maori. Thank you very much. Worked on it all week. The Southern Alps, I say, have lost more ice since the pre-industrial era than what remains today, according to a study published this week by a group of researchers at the University of Leeds in collaboration with the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. The retreat of ice from the glaciers has denuded the landmass. Gee, maybe 
Father McCarrick would like to look at it. Leaving behind a changed landscape. Not even the snowy caps of the Southern Alps are immune to climate change. According to NOAA, Earth experienced its second warmest November on record last year. Record temperatures were recorded in North America, South America, Europe, the southern half of Africa, northern and southern Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. The authors measured volume changes for 400 mountain glaciers across the Southern Alps for three time frames. The long snapshot from roughly 400 years ago to 1978, from 1978 to 2009, and from 2009 to last year. The study was published in Scientific Reports. Results show that ice loss has doubled since the glaciers peaked during the last Little Ice Age. That was a cute one, wasn't it? That little one? Compared to recent decades, the glaciers lost up to 77% of their total volume, according to the study. About 17% of the volume was lost between 78 and 2019 alone. And last year, just 12% of ice mass was left behind in the former low-altitude section of the Little Ice Age glacier region. Study's author says the study indicates a trend in New Zealand's ice loss. The acceleration in the rate of mass loss may only get worse. The rate, rate, the loss acceleration will get worse. Not only climate, but also other local effects become more pronounced, such as more debris accumulating on glaciers, surfaces, and lakes at the bottom of glaciers swell, exacerbating melt, he said, Dr. Karavik, in a statement. He says the ice loss may have likely passed the peak water or tipping point of glacier melt supply. He said the takeaway message is we are in unprecedented times. We hear that so much. The glaciers and thus the alpine landscape and rivers have never been changing so fast as now when compared to the last millennium. Uncharted waters, ladies and gentlemen. You can't have uncharted waters without ice melt. Arctic sea ice is melting more quickly than once assumed. Today's climate models have yet to incorporate the steep rise in temperatures that have occurred over the last 40 years. That's according to a new study by researchers at the University of Copenhagen and other institutions. guess they didn't want their name mentioned. This is from Nature Climate Change. Temperatures in the Arctic between Canada. Hello, Canada. Russia and Europe are warming faster than researchers' climate models have been able to predict. Anybody who's watched the career of Donald Trump knows that models have a very poor predictive profile. After the past 40 years, temperatures have risen by one degree every decade, and even more so over the Barents Sea and over Norway's Svalbard archipelago, where they've increased by one and a half degrees, or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit per decade throughout the period, the past 40 years being the period. This is the conclusion of a new study. Our analyses of Arctic Ocean conditions demonstrate that we've been clearly underestimating the rate of temperature increases in the atmosphere nearest to the sea level, which has ultimately caused sea ice to disappear faster than we had anticipated, said a professor at the Niels Bohr Institute, one of the study's researchers, together with his colleagues and researchers from the universities of Bergen and Oslo. There we go. There are the names. As well as, as well as the Danish Meteorological Institute and Australian National University, he compared current temperature changes in the Arctic with climate fluctuations that we know from, for example, Greenland during the Ice Age between 120,000 and 11,000 years ago. You know about that, right? 
The, in, the abrupt rise in temperature now being experienced in the Arctic has only been observed during the last ice age. During that time, analysis of ice cores revealed the temperatures over the Greenland ice sheet increased several times between 10 to 12 degrees, or 18 to 22 Fahrenheit, over a 40 to 100-year period. The researcher emphasizes the significance of the steep rise in temperature is yet to be fully appreciated. Well, who isn't? And then an in- I like to take everything personally. And that an increased focus on the Arctic and reduced global warming, more generally, are musts. Until now, climate models predicted that Arctic temperatures would increase slowly and regularly in a stable manner. Or a stable boy manner, at least. However, the researchers' analyses demonstrates that these changes are moving along at a much greater pace than expected. News of the warm. You want ice in that drink? Better hurry. And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Nicola, Nicola Sturgeon, sorry, the uh, First Minister of Scotland, has apologized after accepting that her government did not get it right over Scottish exam results. The students in both Scotland and England, Northern Ireland too, and Wales, didn't uh, take their exams this year because of the virus. So the Scottish Qualifications Authority ran a a system based on teacher assessments. Then the officials applied a moderation technique a set of algorithms which led to about 125 estimates of the teachers being downgraded. Like the teacher made estimates of the kids' grades. First Minister said this approach was too focused on the overall system and not enough on individual pupils. This is what Kathy O'Neill told us uh, in our discussion a year or two ago. Algorithms are based on the past. These moderation techniques were trying to make the grades the kids got from their teachers this year match the grades that kids in those districts got in previous years. And she's sorry about that. It came out to be unfair. And there are already now protests in Britain about that as well. Beware of algorithms. They're a blast from the past. Newsweek. There's still Newsweek? Newsweek has apologized for an op-ed that questioned the California Senator... Kamala Harris's American citizenship, oh, this again, and her eligibility, therefore, to be the running mate of Joe Biden. This is a theory which Donald Trump has not dismissed. He dismisses a lot of inspector generals, but no, not this. This op-ed is being used by some as a tool to perpetuate racism and xenophobia. We apologize, said Newsweek's editor's note. It replaced the magazine's earlier detailed defense of the op-ed. Quote, we've entirely failed to anticipate the ways in which the essay would be interpreted, distorted, and weaponized, said the apology, signed by the opinion editor and the global editor-in-chief. That makes it sound like an important news-gathering organization, doesn't it? (laughs) But the pair ended the note by saying that the op-ed would remain on the site with their note attached. Newsweek had earlier defended the piece, arguing that its author, John Eastman, was focusing on a long-standing, somewhat arcane legal debate about the 14th Amendment and not trying to ignite a racist conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory. Dateline North Platte, Nebraska. Quote, It is with the utmost heartmelt sincerity that an apology is being issued to the viewers, viewers and those closely involved with a story that aired with a very serious error 
on the Friday, August 7th morning show on KNOP in North Platte. Story was for a school, back to school backpack distribution program being put on past Saturday at Beautiful Lutheran Church in North Platte. That's the name of the church. In the graphic on air, a picture of a backpack with a gun in the pocket was displayed alongside the story. Of course, this was an error, but it was a terrible error, and we are so sorry. As the news director here at KNFP, I, Melanie Standiford, are issuing the statement to say we are very sorry. We hope you can forgive us for such an error. The people working here and involved in this situation are very kind and not aggressive or hateful in any way. It was a mistake, as it was not easy to see the gun in the backpack on the small screen. Regardless, it is our responsibility to always deliver kind, true, and careful news to you, our viewers. She's watching too much Ellen. Marks and Spencer department store chain in Great Britain has issued an apology to shoppers after being accused of racism. It was criticized by Kusi Kimani over its covert racism of underwear colors. M&S, which operates stores across Great Britain, was slammed by Miss Kimani over a tobacco-colored bra. It was uh, sold for 12 pounds, your 16 bucks, with padded bras described as cinnamon and fudge. I saw it about two weeks ago after George, oh, two weeks after George Floyd's death. It was particularly raw to see at that time, she told the mirror. Why not call it cocoa, caramel, or chocolate? Sweet dessert items. But they use tobacco. I was shocked when they saw it. It's hurtful to me, my friends. If a young girl who's already uncomfortable with the color of her skin sees that she will be feeling even more alienated. See, tobacco is for their skin tone will make them feel unwanted by society. Tobacco is referred to in society as bad, unhealthy, and highly likely to kill. This is an example of how bias is ingrained into society, she concluded. She's 29 at this point. This is a form of covert racism, she concluded. A Marks and Spencer spokesman said, In June, we shared our commitments to being a truly inclusive place to shop and work. We were honest. We have more to do and learn. As part of this, we're reviewing our ranges to ensure we have lingerie, that means their array of, do- of garments, not their uh, cookers, to ensure we have lingerie items that are flattering and suitable for all colors. All of our product color names have been taken from a design color palette used across the industry, but we agree with Kusi. We're sorry for not moving faster. Tobacco. Ladies and gentlemen, Dayline Aurora, Ohio, a local newspaper issued an apology after printing a headline that caused an uproar on social media and in the community. Some parents are furious about the title of the story written about female high school athletes. It's such a sexualized headline, said one. Sophia Lofersky, a 2009 graduate of Aurora Aurora High, the headline read, Girls seek a new number after spending last season on all fours. That was above a story about the high school girls' golf team, printed in the Aurora Advocate. That infuriated, the sexually suggestive wording infuriated Lefersky when she read it. I couldn't believe it. Newspaper issued a statement. The headline did not meet our standards. We apologize for publishing it and pledge to do better. The headline's language, language was sexist and violated a core ethical principle to treat people with respect and compassion. We especially apologize to the members of the Aurora team. All You and all high school athletes deserve fair and respectful coverage on all occasions. We'll endeavor to make sure that happens in the future. We're reviewing how this headline was published. I think the newspaper should know how they're... <laughs> you, you put it in a thing, and then the machine does the thing. 
Thank you, Charlotte, North Carolina. Mayor Vi Lyles read an apology during Monday night's city council business meeting. The apology was a result of work by Advocates for Restorative Justice, a group that seeks to address opportunity and wealth gaps in the city. The group's leader said the mayor went a step further by acknowledging historical injustice and highlighting a path forwards. Our apology is grounded in the fact that Charlotte is a tale of two cities. We have great prosperity and great poverty, Mayor Lyle said. She apologized on behalf of the city for decades of inequality, pointing to the Jim Crow era redlining upward mobility and urban renewal policies in the 60s. Charlotte lives with the continued impact of those laws, policies, and social determinants. We're proud of Mayor Vi Lyles for what she's done, said the Reverend Willie Keaton of restorative justice. And there's more. Deadline, Lou-Ray, Virginia. Not Blu-Ray. Whatever happened to that? Mayor Barry Presgraves looked his community in the eye Monday evening, said he was wrong for posting a racist and sexist Facebook meme, apologized and humbly asked for forgiveness. That was the mayor's first appearance before the council. Since posting on Facebook last weekend, Quote, Joe Biden has just announced Aunt Jemima as his VP pick, unquote. After saying the past eight days had been the most difficult time he, his community, and his family have endured, Presgraves didn't mince words. I understand what I posted on social media was wrong, offensive, and unbecoming. He said his public posting does not reflect what was in my heart. Ooh, that's, that's lucky for us. In earlier interviews with news orgs, the town has a population of 5,000, 90% white. He said he thought the meme was humorous. <laughs> I also want to make a direct apology to all people of color and women. Press passing of demeaning and worn-out racial stereotypes as humor isn't funny. I now fully understand how hurtful it is. He said, I'm not resigning. I can and will do better. We can all do better. We must. I ask humbly for your forgiveness and your grace. Well, your grace is sitting right over here, waiting for the boys to undress. CeeLo Green recently spoke on the state of hip-hop when it comes to female rappers in an interview with Far Out Magazine. Man, I dreamed dreamed of that day. Far Out Magazine. And he wasn't feeling them at all. That is to say, the female rappers, he labeled them as shameless and desperate due to the amount of sexual content in their lyrics. He said music has regressed since the 70s. There was a time when we were savvy enough to crude, or sorry, to code certain things. We could express to those it was meant for with the style of language we used. But now music is shameless. It's sheer savagery, unquote Green. He also bashed Nicki Minaj. He even went on to criticize Megan the Stallion and her content. Attention is a drug and competition is around. Cardi B and Megan the they're all more or less doing similar salacious gesturing to kind of get into position. I get it. Green has since received a ton of backlash. Firstly, I'm an advocate, he says now, of artistic freedom and expression, as well as a fan of Nikki, Cardi, and Megan. I know most of them personally and consider Cardi and Offset family. Therefore, I would never disrespect them by any means. I acknowledge them all as powerful, beautiful, and influential women. I wholeheartedly apologize to each of them for the inconvenience they have been caused due to a snippet of my interview being used as a headline and in turn creating controversy and disconnect between me and these ladies, as well as their fans. 
Much love to all the female artists who are running the game and handling their business, unquote, CeeLo Green. Drab Majesty, a Los Angeles dark wave musician known as in the real world as Andrew Klinko, has issued two apologies days apart after drawing criticism for what he describes as the horrible tweet that I made. I see now that it emanated from a position of white privilege, something that I promise to recognize moving forward. It was a careless and selfish attempt at humor. Humor by amateurs, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen. He'll be giving much more diligent attention and thought to the future aesthetics of drab majesty. That's a relief. The BBC has apologized for using the N-word in quoting, a, um, in quoting verbatim something that someone said. It was a news report about a racially aggravated attack in Bristol. It w- yes, it was exactly that. And Dateline Colorado Springs Police Chief Vince Niski apologized this week after the department completed an internal investigation of a Colorado Springs sergeant accused of posting inappropriate comments online. They appeared during a live stream in June when a group of protesters blocked traffic on I-25, which sparked the investigation. It was, uh, police chief said it was a bad apple in the department, not reflective of our department's character or expectations or how we serve or talk about our community, Niski wrote. It's this ongoing, continual, oh, it's just a bad apple. It's another bad apple. But how many bad apples do you have until you realize you've got root rot? That was a comment by a community organizer in in response to the apology. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. They always say a fish thinks from its head. But what if it started from a tail instead? It's just a few bad apples Messing up the bunch A few bad apples Bringing up your lunch Just a few jumps can start a common cold Just a few cells dying off make you so very old It's just a few bad apples They're so rotten to the core A few bad apples Maybe seven more Don't be angry Save the outrage Don't get mad just those few bad apples Not spending time in chapels Just those few apples going bad It's just a waste of time Looking around the top of that tree Cause the rotten fruit is hanging So close to you and me Just a few drums can start up a parade Just a few defective oranges Can spoil the minute made Just a few bad apples And it happens every time Oh, a few bad apples And those suspects are so prime And I said, that's the simple Makes me glad 
ladies and gentlemen, I got I got nothing more. That's it. Bottom. Bottom, baby. End of the show for this week. Next week, hopefully more will come. Love you to join me then. Same time on the radio or at any time you like on your audio device of choice. Or even an audio device you hate but are tethered to in some mysterious way. And it'll be just like me ending this way too long discussion of next week's show. If you'd agree with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk. And to Pam Halstead and Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program. Email. Ask your dad about it. The playlist of the music heard here on and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts for the family. You remember them? All at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long. From the place where the show comes from.